Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hey guys, welcome back to Pulse to the Wall, recording live once again from Freedom Fest. And we are joined by officially our most reoccurring guest, Mr. Gene Epstein. Gene, how are you doing today? Very good. Uh, I'm having a great time at Freedom Fest because uh, Freedom Fest means many things to many people. To me, it means certain particular things that I do joyfully, and uh, that's why I'm in a great mood. And especially in a great mood, spending time with you guys. Yeah, uh, it's a true honor to meet you. It was great. Um, didn't really know what, know what to expect. I mean, there's a lot of people here that I've only met through webcam on our podcast, or I've listened to them for years on a podcast, never seen them in person. Yeah. And every single person I've met is every bit as authentic and genuine and friendly as I expected they would be. It's a great. Well, that's it. Uh, and uh, that's really. Uh, very meaningful from my standpoint uh, that uh, all uh, the people I spend time with at Freedom Fest is really the reason why I come to Freedom Fest. Well, Freedom Fest is supposed to be just a, a series of events that you attend. The truth is that so much of what really matters to me at Freedom Fest is the time I spend with you guys, uh, the time I spend with so many other people whom I know from the Freedom Movement, and we're dispersed all over the country, and uh, this is a good place for us to converge, uh, for us to spend time with each other, because despite all the advantages of Zoom and all the advantages of other uh, media that enable us to talk to each other, uh, there's no substitute for actually Pressing the, pressing the flesh. As you know, I'm a hugger. I hug everybody. And uh, I do that even in the days of COVID. I did it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's my style. And that's why I'm having so much fun at Freedom Fest. Because there's about 50 to 60 people whom I haven't seen in a long time from the Contra Cruise, uh, from uh, from Florida, from from the Soul Forum, from others whom I haven't seen, and so many others like you guys whom I never met in person before. Yeah. And that's the delight of Freedom Fest. Yeah, and when, when I first saw you here, you were behind us in line when we were uh, registering. You're probably 10 people behind me, yeah. and I was like, oh, that's Gene. I yeah. recognized you. And you were talking to a friend of yours, so I didn't want to interrupt. I kept like standing back, <laughs> yeah. like, I never met the guy in person. I don't want to start by interrupting and being rude, so I'm waiting for an in. You know, because I mean, it's like when Nick, Nick's dog was barking the first time. I was like, I don't want, I don't want to give a bad impression the first time. <laughs> um, 
uh, talking the first time you're on the show, the dog was barking in the background, and Gene was a little distracted by that. We used to make a, it's a running joke now that Nick's, <laughs> Nick's dog is annoying. Oh yeah, that goddamn dog. But that. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, and there's Stefan Kinsella. Hey man, look us by. And uh, so Stefan. Uh, uh, do you want Stefan to join us? Yeah, Stefan, I opened up yeah. that chair if you want to swing yeah. around and sit down there. Yeah, and fire up the other mic. Because I, I, I do have uh, another way of characterizing Freedom Fest, and I don't know if Stefan would agree with me. Stefan, by the way, is a great legal mind, uh, probably the greatest legal mind uh, in the libertarian movement, still alive today. The greatest le- le- legal mind who hasn't yet died, Stefan. Is that what I'm trying Randy to say? Randy Barnett is a pretty impressive uh, legal scholar. Yeah, yeah, but... I'm I, 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 not to diminish Randy in any way, but I was a little bit disappointed, if you want to know the truth, in the, in the argument he made uh, when he came to, uh, to uh, the Civil Forum. He was defending the Constitution, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the other side actually had a somewhat better argument. Uh, but uh, look, I admire Randy as well. But, uh, but when I heard Dave Rubin, for example, uh, just to choose an easy example. Now, Dave Rubin, who's a famous podcaster, he, uh, he spoke uh, about being a classical liberal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's nice. You know, classical liberalism overlaps with libertarianism in many crucial ways. But then he said uh, that he admires something that, Jordan, something that Jordan Peterson said. Jordan Peterson said, we need conservatives and we need liberals. And he meant welfare state liberals. Mm-hmm. We need those welfare state liberals to tell, to talk about helping people. Yeah. And then we need the conservatives to say, wait a minute, maybe you're going too far. Now, I wanted to say in response to Dave, we don't need either of those Correct. people. Correct. We don't need either of those people. All we need is a free market. Yeah. In, and in the free market, 99% of the population will flourish materially, spiritually, and every other way. The other 1% will need some help, but the compassion of the 99% will be more than enough to help that 1%. So we don't need the welfare state, progressives arguing with the conservatives. If that's your classical liberalism, then you're marching in the wrong direction. What do you think of that point? I totally agree with you. I mean, I think Rubin is someone inching his way towards libertarianism in a halting way, and that's fine. But, yeah, I think that's wrong, and... and, uh, to, to say that we need the liberals and we need the left. Personally, I don't even think classical liberals are libertarians. Um, I think they're one of the precursors to libertarianism. They're like a, a close cousin. But I wouldn't say that classical liberals are libertarians um, at all. I think we are a more consistent uh, political philosophy, and we basically believe in property rules that are designed to help us avoid conflict and to have a peace in society and to have prosperity. So we have a very consistent application of uh, property rules, which some people abbreviate as the non-aggression principle. And the classical liberals just don't do that. They, I think they view liberty as one of many values that we need to, that are important. And they're will, that means they're willing to sacrifice liberty as a value or rights as a value for other, for other things that they think are important, which is why they make exceptions to the non-aggression principle, right? So they're against it most of the time, but they're willing to tax. Or I think Dave Rubin's even in favor of a socialized medical system, the last time I heard him talk about it. So if you don't have a principled understanding of the need for property rules, then you're going to you're going to borrow sometimes from the socialists and the left. I guess it does, to some degree, reduce to that old joke, who'll build the roads. And, and most classical liberals that I know, including Richard Epstein, uh, a great guy personally, not a, no relation to me, 
but a smart guy in many ways. He does believe that you need the government to build the roads and to declare eminent domain in order to build that road. And I guess that's where we, uh, as libertarians, uh, part company with the classical liberals. And But with respect to Stefan, uh, his specialty, as you guys probably know, is IP, intellectual property. And uh, over the years, he's told me, look, I would like to defend my ideas of the Soul Forum. So I always thought of Stefan, brilliant as he is, as being a great sort of thinker in terms of principles, but then the old uh, uh, reaction that people give to some people like Stefan, I don't care about your principles, I just want innovation. I want good ideas coming out. And if the government is going to give special privileges to these people with the good ideas, then why not? Why object to that? We need all these, all, we, need, we need the airplane, we, we need the computer, we need all these breakthroughs, we need good novels, good fiction, good books. That's what intellectual property protects, and that's an empirical argument. And I, I wasn't always sure that Stefan was on sound ground <laughs> addressing that empirical, empirical argument, so I hesitate. I say this in front of him because I have a high regard for him, and he doesn't mind my insulting him. But now, uh, I think he's come up with good empiricism, and I'm going to put him up at the Soul Forum to debate a couple of guys uh, that I'm going to choose from uh, in terms of intellectual property. How do you respond to that insult, Stefan? I don't mind it at all, and I'm, I'm not even a self-promoter. I don't care if I'm on stage. I just like the ideas to get out there to educate libertarians. He's not a self-promoter, but he kept telling me, I want to debate this. No, I'm not a self-promoter, but I would like to debate at the Soul Forum. Not because I self-promote, but because I want those ideas out. I want you to know that. Yeah. There's no ego in this. That's what th you There really that, is. No, you know, there's not. Yeah. I, I would like you to have IP as, a, as one of the topics, whether it's me or someone else. It's just I happen to be the only one who could do it. Yeah. <laughs> do it right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's not an egotist in any way. <laughs> He's a very modest man, as they say in The Godfather. A modest man. He'll always, always listen to reason. That's um, Stefan. But as for the insult, so um, uh, sometimes if someone asks me a question like, They'll come up with these as a challenge, as a demand, like, well, how am I supposed to make money as an author? And if they do it like that, they're not really asking a sincere question. They're, they're basically saying, unless you can guarantee that I can make money in my business model, then I'm going to favor status solutions or copyright or government subsidies. So if they say, how am I supposed to make money, I'll say, that's your problem. So, But if someone asks a sincere question, like, well, how would people make money in your world? Or... What is the empirical situation with regard to patents? If they ask a real question, I'm happy to engage and answer that. So you might have gotten the impression that I, I just care only about principles because I do answer the principle question ultimately if someone pushes me. Like, I'll say, well, your failed business model is really not my problem. It's the entrepreneur's job to figure out how to make money in the face of competition in the free market. I met Stefan at a party. You had a question. I, I, I got a question. Just yeah. on, on a more broader strategical level. Yeah. I was always a sucker when I was getting into this hardcore libertarian world. I loved the hardcore arguments, like no intellectual property. To me, that's like a challenge. And it's like, if you're going to take that position, you have to have an airtight defense, right? If, if one person can poke a hole in your argument, then, you know, the whole thing falls apart and you're discredited. So when it comes to, like we were talking about classical liberals and then libertarians, and obviously, if the, the majority of the country was all classical liberals, we'd be in a much better place, right? Yeah. But how, when it comes to converting people to winning our ideas over, I like, you know, Stefan's style of leading with the hardcore arguments. And then if you can win somebody over on that, then they're going to be good on most of the other issues. 
So do you think that ought to be the strategy, or do you think that we should, like, incrementally try to sway people, right? No, it's like I, I, marijuana I, legalization. Like, we're going to nudge you I, until we get I, to the I, I believe in a big tent. Uh, I was just talking to my friend Juan Carpio about, I said, you know, usually I go to more hardcore principle theoretical events like Mises events and sure. Property Freedom Society, anarchists. But this is more like about freedom, so even some Republicans are here, right? But I think that's good, too, to attract young people to the message of freedom. And yeah. they will be around people that are more hardcore and principled and theoretical, and they will maybe learn over time. So I think all approaches are fine. But I think one reason – I mean, my approach came from Rand, and what attracted me was this kind of rights-based approach. So, like, her argument against the antitrust laws and against minimum wage laws was not empirical. It was rights. It was like, ultimately, you have a right to offer to pay someone 50 cents an hour for a job. Because you're not violating their rights. That's the reason why any uh, minimum wage laws are wrong. Right. And you have the right, two businessmen have the right to collude if they want to. Right. Even if it harms consumer welfare. I don't think it does, but even if it does. So that's the that's the principled argument. And then you say, well, and the evidence shows that these are really not problems anyway. Right. So I think that may be one reason my style for the IP thing is to go right for the rights approach, but then to buttress it with empirical Arguments. Well, I've always been a mixture, uh, and uh, I, I uh, respect Stefan's approach, and I, I do believe that there are many ways in, and you have your particular way in, and I respect that, and I respect uh, Stefan's particular niche and contribution and all that he has to say. Uh, as an economist, of course, I guess I specialize in consequentialism, and I liked something that David Friedman uh, said, David, being uh, uh, the son of Milton Friedman and being uh, kind of lukewarm in terms of his passion about any of these issues but but uh, and I think that's one of his flaws but but he but I think he makes a good point by saying the odd thing about consequentialism that that has little to do with principles is that is that consequentialism with respect to the free market is so powerful that almost any range of principles can embrace the free market because because the consequentialist takes care of almost everything. I mean, if you are if you are at least a, a libertarian leaning socialist and your passion is that the workers should run the means of production, your passion is that there should be more equality. The truth is that that equality that really means something could probably be attained better on the free market, but more particularly, truly well run and and inspiring worker owned companies can only be run on the free market. So that's an example of the idea yeah. that we can, we can, as long as you're not a fascist who likes to kill people and kick ass, as long as you're not a Nazi, uh, we can attract you as well. And so the power the power of consequentialism is such that when I was speaking to, to, uh, to uh, um, Stefan yesterday about the arguments he might make is that he could probably get up on the stage and defend uh, the argument that there should be no protection of intellectual property simply on a pure consequentialist basis. He could say, Yes. He said, you, you, all you, you want innovation, screw the principles. Yes. You want innovation? Well, the fact of the matter is you probably get more innovation. Yes. Yeah. So, that, so that's the irony. So right, therefore, right. we have so much power with respect to consequentialism that we shouldn't give up on that. And that's, of course, as an economist, steeped in those issues, I have something to contribute there as well. Stefan, of course, is a switch hitter. He can do it all, at least at this well, point he can. Well, we're all seeing the reality, the elephant, yeah. and we're seeing different parts of the elephant, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a consequentialist part, there's a principle part. I mean, I think Mises was more of a consequentialist in your sense, right? Yes, Basically, yeah, the idea yeah, is yeah. that if, you, if you're a benevolent person, you're not a misanthrope. Yeah. Like, if you want prosperity and peace for mankind, yeah. 
then if you understand economics, you understand that's the means of achieving that end. Yeah. And yeah. most people are not misanthropes. Well, yeah. Well, let's say your passion is passivism. You know, yes. that almost like the whole, like you can say, look, I don't, look, what, as Walter Block said, what, what's the biggest violation of what I prefer to call the zero aggression principle? Because I don't like an end. And now, uh, what's the biggest uh, issue for any libertarian? War, obviously, because that's the biggest violation of, the, of that principle. And then, so, and then a pacifist could say, yeah, I've got it all. I, my pacifism is the most important thing. So, uh, and if you're a pacifist, certainly to the extent that, that we're going to have a society, a, a libertarian free market society, best serves your interests and your needs to the extent that, that, you, uh, that, that it can contribute anything. So therefore, you, sh you as a pacifist should also be. So that's my point, that all principles can be, but uh, can be accommodated. Although with that said, uh, the, the, we are, my usual way of framing something uh, uh, introduces principle is that, in the, is that I always want to insist look, this argument is not a level playing field. The argument over war should the government go to war to defend our freedom? Well, this is not a level playing. The government's going to kill a lot of people. That's the known about war. So, so if you're going to kill a lot of people, you got to have an overwhelming justification. You bear the burden of proof. That's the principle, the zero aggression principle applying. Similarly, you, you want tariffs. You, you, you want the government to obstruct free trade. You want the government to obstruct my right to buy something from a Chinese vendor in... China? Yep. Well, uh, you bear the burden of proof. Yeah, and this and, is not a level playing field. And for intellectual property, if you're going to if the government's going to give someone a monopoly for 17 yeah, years that yeah, allows them yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. stop competition, yeah. you need to have a good reason for that. Yeah, exactly. And if you're going to if yeah. you're going to give someone a copyright that lasts 130 years, that allows them to censor free speech and yeah. freedom of the press, yeah. you need a good reason for that. Yeah. So the burden of proof is clearly upon the proponents, especially if they're libertarians who claim to believe in liberty and free markets yeah. because at least on their face patents contradict competition in the free market and property rights and copyright contradicts freedom of speech and freedom of the press yeah. so they have the burden of proof so even if they're going to make an empirical or utilitarian argument they need to prove that right and the, and the, and the biggest you know when uh Stefan said there are a lot of Republicans around here. As I occasionally put it, when you come to Freedom Fest, you're sometimes up to your armpits in neocons. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and then, of course, the odd thing about the neocons is that so often, so often, when you just talk about the market and the free market and issues relating only to the free market, they sound like libertarians. And so, uh, and yet, when they switch, and they start talking about American foreign policy, they lose it altogether. And, oh, yeah. and in a way, it, and it's such a, a complete contradiction right, in right. terms of their viewpoint. But there's some kind of religious conviction they have in, in, the, in the wonder of the American government. When Hersia Lee, apparently, was telling Scott Horton, you went to it again. Yeah. Yeah, America has to lead. You know, like, like they, it's our pope and our church. And, you know, it's like, it's like a religious war. You know, you can justify, I guess, any kind of slaughter and killing. Because we're doing it for Allah, we're doing it for Jehovah, you know. So I guess that's what it reduces to, and you just don't know what to say to these people, how you can shake them out of it. Uh, it's very difficult to do so. Oh, no, I was going to say, speaking of Scott, yesterday uh, he was doing a book signing, and we went over and he started, I don't know how we got on topic, but we talked to him for like half an hour about the JFK assassination. I wish we were recording. Yeah. But one of the like, arguments that uh, he made, or ideas that I'd never heard before, is he goes, you're talking to neocons about things like sanctions. He goes, how is, like, sanctions, I mean, that's communism. He's like, you're preventing people from voluntarily, voluntarily exchanging 
isn't that what communism is? I'm like, oh, that's a fun weapon, a little bit of ammo for dealing with the, the right-wingers that will make those arguments. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was something that I'd never thought of before. So, I mean, that was, uh, that was cool. Actually, remind me of a point I've been trying to make, a hobby horse of mine, which I might as well introduce since we're talking about sanctions. You know, I, of course, believe that it's a violation of my of, of the zero aggression principle to impose sanctions to, to prevent me from trading with Cuba or traveling to Cuba or any yeah. other rights that I have in that regard. But but and uh, so of course that's important to uh, to stress. But I do argue as a consequentialist economist that. The, that, that the sanctions that the U.S. imposed on Cuba never really meant, could have meant very much had Cuba been a vibrant economy because of the simple economic argument that you need a lot of countries, as in the case of the sanctions on Iran, you need a lot of countries uh, to have trade restrictions on a particular country in order to make a difference. The fact is that Cuba was always able to trade with Canada, Mexico, Brazil, UK, Germany. They, 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 the, the the Arab oil embargo, by the way, in 1972 was a joke. All the Arabs did was they sold a lot of oil to other countries, and the oil then was sold to the U.S. Yeah. There's so many workarounds. They, they, they did the, the Cubans could sell sugar to the rest of the world. But from 1960, over the last 60 years, the market for sugar has, has greatly increased. Yeah, isn't it true we only had the, the, the lines for gas in the 70s because of the price controls? It wasn't because of the uh, precisely the, the embargo. Precisely. It was not. The oil, the oil, the, 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 it's just a bathtub. And however it comes in, exactly. it, it's distributed because it, it, they, they were literally. Uh, uh, it was documented. There were literally ships that were supposed to be part of the embargo. They said they were going to France, and then they turned around and they went to the U.S. You know, so, so they broke the embargo in the middle of the ocean. That was, that's the story about the embargo. But my point is that it was, it's only been the U.S. that has ever imposed an embargo on Cuba. The U.S. could never get any other country to sign on to it. Not even punk country. Not even Israel would do it. So the fact fact is that Cuba had the rest of the world and they could say we want to buy some American goods could you buy from America and just turn it around for us or they didn't even have we, to we'd buy have America. to have a blockade and surround them which would be an act of war oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah exactly so we would have to do that that's Precis the only way we could precisely we, could we briefly did during the Cuban Missile Crisis right, right, but right. that was only very no, no nukes yeah, yeah, no so, nukes. so, so the excuse that the Cuban economy has suffered because of, they've suffered because of socialism that and they can never take advantage of, of their opportunity so we should stop the embargo to quit giving the, 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 the anti-capitalist an excuse to blame it on us. Precisely, yeah. yeah. Let, so, let them see what happens in socialism when yes. the U.S. gets out of it. I kind of want to circle back to uh, oh. uh, something you're talking about intellectual property. I didn't want to oh. interrupt. You guys are going so well, so I couldn't find a way to interrupt. But um, in your field of what you've been doing with intellectual property and law, are you familiar with uh, George B. Selden and the Selden patent with the automobile in the 1890s? It sounds familiar. Remind me. So George B. Selden was a lawyer, and he filed a patent for a motorized vehicle, and he started to build one, but he never succeeded. He could never get the, the motor to run, but he, he drew up the plans, and he was a patent troll, so he, he patented the idea. Then, you know, obviously Henry Ford ran some was old... Was early 1900s? 1895 was the patent, and then once Henry Ford uh, monetized and started mass-producing cars, and all these other manufacturers started booming... He sued them all and won in court initially, and I think he got something crazy, like 7% of every car sold from every auto manufacturer. They had to join his license. It was called ALAM, Automotive License of Auto Manufacturers or something. And everyone signed up besides Henry Ford and Ransom Olds. They said, we're not doing this. And he fought him in court until, I think, 1908, and Henry Ford beat him. And that's why you've never heard of him, because Henry Ford won. But it was a perfect example of intellectual property. He could never figure out how to do it. 
but wanted the yeah I, I, uh, I that's probably covered in Bolger and Levine's book against intellectual monopoly because they go into a lot of the historical examples um, but that's just a case of how patents can bog down innovation because it, it took some resources from Ford to fight it off, I'm sure. Yeah. Right? And uh, and it puts a cloud of uncertainty over whether this field is open to competition. So maybe some smaller companies that would have competed stayed out of it. That, that certainly happens nowadays with, with how patents, patent litigation is so rampant. Um, another example from around the era was, um, and I think this is also covered in Bolger and Levine's book, is that um, uh, you know the, air, the airplane industry was pioneered with the Wright brothers and in the U.S., but soon after that, all the patent wars started, right. and so it basically hampered the entire American aviation industry uh, because of the patent uncertainty and fights. And so when World War I broke out, the aviation industry was robust in France, so all the airplanes came from France because the U.S. We were like a decade or two behind. Wow. So we had to catch up. We finally caught up by World War II. But uh, yeah, so uh, not that I'm pro World War One or two, but the aviation industry was impeded for a couple of decades in the U.S. because of that. And there's another funny story. Um, it's it's kind of complicated, but um, Edison um, moved some of his technology about movie making to Hollywood to escape patent lawsuits in New York. So the reason Hollywood is the center of <coughs> culture and f the film industry is because of uh, because of patents too. So it's just on, the weather helped. The weather was supposed to be a big. Okay, company. I guess. But it's interesting how IP distorts everything. It distorts culture. Even patents distort culture. Well, you know, you know, I don't know if, if you read, uh, you know, Matt Ridley, who's a good guy. Yeah. 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 And he, he wrote a very entertaining book about innovation recently. I forget the title. How innovation works. How innovation works. Great and book. It's a series of chapters. He's a good writer. Entertaining tales. And of course, he basically is. Agrees with you, by the way. Perhaps you yeah. know I mean, he's against it at all. But uh, but the other but he but he he actually alert he he makes the point that cell phones could have come out about fifty years ago. That that government was obstructing the introduction of cell of, of cell phones. That 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 that, that it, you know the the, the 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 breakout of cell phones was fifty years late because of a government intervention of forty years right. late because of government intervention. Yeah. So a question for both of you, because yeah. I'm sure both of you are well more are more well versed in this uh, scandal, but when Obama, was it subsidies that he gave to Solyndra and it kind of set back the solar industry because Solyndra had a monopoly on development because nobody could compete with them? Or was that patent related? Because I was in, that was what, 2008? When I don't was remember on? the details of what happened there, uh, the whole scandal. I just vaguely recall the... Well, yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I couldn't remember if it was subsidies or patents that, like, you know, put the industry on halt for five years. Like, this company was a bureaucracy that never produced anything and basically nobody could compete with them from like 2007 or 2008 to 2012 or something like that so i can't remember what the details were i thought could it could be an fda you. thing well, what was so what was solyndra solyndra was a solar so, company solar that obama solar. well then was, i don't know what it would have yeah, been yeah. yeah it was obama's baby his like yes. green energy initiative and I, I don't know if it was subsidies and patents but basically nobody could compete with them for five years yeah. and then other countries were pulling ahead of us in solar. Not that I know that much about yeah. solar. It's an interesting nuance, but I mean, of course, I mean, my main reaction to the Solyndra bankruptcy, you know, is here we have, here we have Biden, I think was most of the spokesman, to promoting a particular company, Solyndra, we're investing in Solyndra, we're giving them loan guarantees and all that, because that's so crazy that the government's picking a winner in any particular field. But then, of course, more 
broadly, the solar industry is essentially on life support from government. You know, the, the, the potential of solar is very, very limited. Yeah. It should not be used. It, it would never be used, never be used to generate electricity, uh, except in very, very minor ways. So, so the whole thing is a joke. So, I mean, the industry itself is mostly, a, a, mostly a joke. Right. I mean, this, the subsidies from New York State, all, all the other ways in which uh, it's helped, uh, is really the only reason why it exists. Uh, there would be very little of it left if government were to back off. So maybe, a, maybe a more current example is the COVID vaccine, because yeah. of course that's distorted heavily by subsidies yeah. and by mandates and by government direction and all this. But also there's been a, a, a you know a, some kind of kerfuffle lately about whether the U.S. and the Western government should bust the patents or something like that. So you have the government granting patents and then the government com- saying they're going to rescue innovation and the distribution of this vaccine by busting the patent. Um, and it's also odd, by the way, patents usually take about a year and a half at least once you file it to get it issued. So I don't know what patents are going to bust because the vaccine's only been out, what, six months? So I don't know what patents exist. So unless they've been working on these patents for five years, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but there are some patent guys like this guy named David Martin has an interesting YouTube video where he goes exhaustively through all this stuff saying that some of the stuff in the in, in in the COVID vaccine now was in patents from 10 years ago. That's what I've heard, yeah. Yeah. I don't know the... So I don't know what exactly that's supposed to mean. But anyway, so the way it works is the government grants these patent monopolies, so the government retains the right to just abolish it. Because they grant it, they can take it back. And that's called a compulsory license. The government threatened to do that back in the Cipro uh, anthrax crisis about 10, 15 years ago because there wasn't enough production because only one company had the right to make it and they weren't producing enough. So the government threatened to basically issue a license under the patent to competitors to let them make it. So they can do that. Then they pay compensation as if it's a taking of property, which it's not. But that's what the government's threatening to do now. It's almost like when the government says, we're going to protect you from inflation. Like, like they're not the cause of it, you know. So right, the government right, grants these right. patents, and then they threaten to take them back, and then everyone freaks out like it's a violation of property well, rights. A big argument, especially the patent thing, a big argument that the patents made a big difference in terms of accelerating the vaccine that protects us all. What's I, I think, the, well, that's the argument for people that don't want you to issue the compulsory license. They're saying if you issue the compulsory license, then uh, Moderna and these other companies won't be able to get a monopoly price for, for several years. Uh, and therefore, they won't be able to recoup their investment costs, which I guess the government subsidized anyway. No one, no one knows the workings of what happened there. No one knows what costs they're supposed to be recouping, right? Um, but no, I think the idea is this: that there's a shortage of supply, and the, the supply is short is, is low because companies have a monopoly. Only they can make the, the vaccine that they came up with, and so if you bust the patent, other companies can make that. So the basic argument is that they're seeing that patents restrict production restrict competition whether it was the cause of the company's uh, investing in the vaccine in the first place is not clear because uh, Moderna and these companies are going to make billions and billions anyway no, no matter what right. they're, they're, they're in place to do that even if other companies gear up and start competing with them um, so I, I don't know whether the government subsidized and to what extent they subsidized the research and development in the first place I have a feeling that the government invests uh, guarantee you're saying are you saying there would have been a better outcome had there been no patent protection at all? Better vaccine outcome? I suspect been- it would have been the same. same. I think it would have been the same in this case. I think that Moderna and all these companies would have invested. They would have come up with the vaccines, and they'd be selling them for a large profit at this point. I see. And there wouldn't have been, but there would have been some copycats, some uh, some knockoffs. No, it, it would have taken quite a while to have a copycat come up because, as you as you see right now, it took them a while to gear up. 
uh, the copycats would have taken at least a year or two to come up to speed and to copy with them. So they would have had at least the first, a first mover advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even once the copycats came in, they would still have uh, they would still have a market because they have a reputation, they have a name, they have a supply channel. I see. I think you've got, I think you've got another interview coming up. So I guess we're what? Yeah, no, one question before you go, Gene, because sure. I know you've got an out around noon. Sure. Um, I've I got to know, how do you keep this energy? Uh, oh. I don't know anybody in their 70s that does as much as you do, and you're still putting on the Soho Forum. What is the secret? Are you on, what do you got, I've, caffeine? I've quit my thing? day job. <laughs> <laughs> Barons drove me out after 26 years in, in, in January of 2018. They gave me a, a huge severance package and uh, a Cadillac plan for the health insurance. And so, and now, and the Soho Forum pays for this office that I go to every day. And, and so uh, I actually have slowed down. I wanted to do some books. I am potentially hoping to do a book on, on bleeding hard capitalism because I've got a lot of data on how working class people have done in the economy, so I haven't gotten around to that. But of course, that, that, that does help a lot. I'm 76, but the fact is I no longer have to earn a living in a day job the way some of the rest of you have to. And of course, that's uh, this guy's secret too. You know, he, he made a pile of dough as a lawyer in his heyday. He's got a lot socked away in my, yeah. as far as I'm My own benefactor. Yeah. Plus, plus, I married well. Married well. And then I, I, I actually married well to, uh, to a woman who owns a my cycle. So therefore, I don't have to worry about paying my bills. And right, so right. Therefore, so that's my secret. You guys, unfortunately, have got to have a day job. So I don't know how you do it. You know, you, you're, you're the guy. You're the wonderkind. This guy and I are just obvious cases of people who have a few bucks accumulated, and that's where we can spend time having fun with you. Let me ask you a Baron's question before sure, we go. Sure, sure. Um, oh, I remember David Kelly used to have a column there. Was that was that your was that your doing back in the eighties? David Kelly had a Baron's column, I believe. You go so far back. I started with Baron's in nineteen ninety two, uh-huh. so I don't I don't have any. Okay, insight. it wasn't your. Okay, I thought maybe you were the one behind that, or maybe David, he got well, you a job there. Well, David Kelly, who's a, oh, an objective. You mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. David well, Kelly, the, well, the objective. Well, I do philosopher. know Bob. Robert Bleiberg was the publisher, okay. and he was a libertarian, although a little bit of a blustery one. So I'm um, no doubt Bleiberg, Bleiberg actually helped put Greenspan on the map, gave him a lot of interviews and a lot of attention when Greenspan was an objectivist and Bleiberg. So uh, that's part of the reason why I was able to survive at Barron's. Because I said, look, we're, we, we, there's always a place for a libertarian at Barron's, right? Because Bleiberg set that pattern. So I'm sure it was Bleiberg who, okay. who was in charge there. Then Bleiberg died, and uh, but then the tradition continued. So I think that's the answer your question. Bleiberg gave him the job. That's all that's all I wanted to know. So that's uh, that's like how you do it. You just accumulate look again I'm but you know I'm seventy six and I that's why I went out uh, th- there was a very good presentation by a guy who wants to extend life to one hundred seventy six to two hundred seventy six. He talked about time he made the libertarian point because he is a libertarian, a guy named Greg Fay. And there are other people who've been following him. He's got a, a, a way of extending life and he said time for libertarians in a way is the major authoritarian, the major you know, the, that's the Grim Reaper that we face, which we libertarians can possibly defeat. So that's been very good as well. But of course, at the age of 76, I'm a little concerned about what will happen when I'm 86. So I have the advantage of being 76. This guy is much young. He became a multimillionaire. And how old are you now? 55. So he did it at 55. He still, and I, it took me a number, I was just a chump change journalist. It took a much longer time for me to accumulate the last day and then for me to marry well. I married a soccer 14. This guy did it much earlier, so that's how, what he figured out. 
So that's the answer to your question. All right, I like it. Now, I don't want to keep you guys any longer sure, than sure. Uh, than we have to. I know you guys both got obligations. So um, anything you want to plug before we wrap up here? Well, I guess I want to plug the Soul Forum, which will go to work to get uh, Stephen Kinsella uh, attention for his ideas, even though he doesn't, he's not interested in, uh, in it as Stefan, he just wants the ideas out, and he's going to debate another guy, uh, another guy, probably not another woman, on this issue. But in September, we're having a debate on the election laws uh, at, in downtown Manhattan. Look at, at thesoulforum.org. Uh, the for that particular debate. That's our first in-person debate. We're going to have a big party afterwards. And then on October 4th, we're having Scott Horton versus Bill Crystal. The big one. Uh, and an 800-seater. We still have tickets available for that one. There'll be a big party for that one as well. So please come to New York City uh, to participate in the Soul Forum. And, and right now, probably in November, we're going to have Robbie Suave versus Dave Rubin on, Dave Rubin on, uh, on uh, social media. So we're, I'm excited now that we're returning to New York City. I'm optimistic that New York City will remain open and that I, I, that I know how long I have to suffer Zoom fatigue. The Soul Forum has two missions, to have uh, debates of interest to libertarians and to have a party, uh, a way in which libertarians can eat, drink, and be merry. And that's what the Soul Forum has been all about. And we're reinstituting that this fall in New York City. I like it. But New, New York won't be the same after Malice leaves. I hear Michael Malice is moving to Austin, so uh, I don't know. Yeah, Maybe the rats are fleeing the ship. We'll suffer the blow. Losing, uh, losing Malice is pretty major for us. You're absolutely right. But I, I think we'll make do. We'll muddle through. Yeah. Um, my IP stuff is at c4sif.org, Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm always pigeonholed as Mr. IP, but it's really a minor interest of mine in a sense. I, I, really, like, I really like libertarian theory, rights theory, contract, property he's writing, theory. He's writing the Constitution. What are you writing? I am, I am working on a draft libertarian statement of principles, yeah, which yeah. should be sort of like a proto-constitutional template. But uh, yeah, yeah. I have a book coming out hopefully later this year, early next year at the latest, called Law in a Libertarian World, which is an edited selection of some of my essays over the last 20-plus years on libertarian theory, legal theory, including IP, but lots of other things too. So, And that's all at stephankinsella.com, and I'm on Twitter at nskinsella, and Facebook at nskinsella too. Oh, and then of course my Twitter feed is at Gene, at Gene Soulform. Gene Soulform is my Twitter feed, where you can follow most of my announcements and most of my pronouncements and any other articles I've written are posted at that Twitter feed. Gene Soulform. Yeah. Gene Soulform. All right, guys, this was a blast, so uh, thank you. Thanks a lot. Sure. Yeah. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC, out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.